Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we take a look at the technology behind the energy news and review the stories uh, behind Rethink Energy. I'm Peter White and this week, unfortunately, Harry Morgan is on holiday. But we still have our solar specialist, Andrew Swantanar. Hello. And our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello. On the show today, we're going to take a brief glimpse at uh, China's surge in electric vehicle sales, uh, both home and abroad, catch up on global carbon markets, and then take a brief look at how the Russian oil crisis has accelerated German grid development. As usual, we'll be asking what caught Simon's eye this week. So, first off, I want to take a view on uh, on Chinese numbers for EV sales. I mean... This is something, a story you can get excited about every month because there's new numbers out every month. These are the April numbers published by the China's Association of of Car Manufacturers. And 29% of all vehicles sold in China in April were electric vehicles, either plug-in or fully battery electric. That's 29% is a very high number. Even in our forecast, we haven't got China reaching much above uh, 18.5% this year. And the average year to date is only about 18.1% of uh, cars shipped in China were EVs. But this is what you get with a predictable, stable government, which puts in place the right kinds of um, subsidies to um, make electric cars as cheap as um, as any other type of car. And also, it's what you get when you've got a very innovative environment where, I mean, one of the hottest selling cars is the Wuling Hongguang Mini EV, which I don't think would sell outside China. It's really a kind of shopping car. It's a small, almost one-person car uh, with, a, with a very low range. Although that's the best-selling car, all the other, uh, number two, three, and four, are all BYD cars. Uh, the BYD Song Pro Plus uh, and a host of other BYD cars. And all of them are much more the equivalent of a, a Tesla car's vehicle. Perhaps not quite as good as Tesla's, but, you know, still, they, they have a better range and they they, they, they take they have four seats. So this is um, not really a uh, change in, in what happens, what's been happening in China. We did a forecast last year saying that we there'll be 1.63 billion passenger cars, electric passenger cars by 2050. We said that it was a conservative estimate. We said there will be accelerations that go beyond this. China is now consistently ahead of the numbers we forecast. And we're gonna, when we do another copy of that forecast, we're going to have to extend the Chinese ones. But at the same time, the only other substantially uh, out numbers that we published in that forecast is America which are behind, and they're behind primarily because Biden can't get his way in bringing in money to uh, accelerate EV car sales. And the way he's brought it in is to support only, to give increased um, subsidies to um, to unionised labour, which is snubbed all the pure EV players. China would never snub all the pure EV players in that way. And this is a you know definitely a government misstep. Anyone else want to cut in with anything? Yeah, I was going to say all of this with a, a, con- a prolonged lockdown in Shanghai, population 25 million, economic hub. Um, but, but one of the things that, that struck me about the article was about this, the focus of the Chinese market of this small 
city car, the you know this as you say shopping uh, vehicle, which would be which, which is great marketing sense because you can shift large units. Of those large cars. numbers of and units. They're very small units. units. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. And they would be popular in, you know, city markets, European. I could think of European conurbations and so on. So, um, the, so, so the Chinese uh, have got that right, I think, in, in the type of vehicle that's being manufactured. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they, they manufacture all sorts of vehicles. I mean, you, you mustn't get confused about the Chinese market. It is still uh, a matter of prestige to have a nice big SUV in the same way that American buyers like nice big SUVs and, and pickup trucks. Um, it's not the same kind of fetish mentality for pickup trucks in, in China, but there is for large um, status symbol cars which travel a long way and, and take multiple uh, people so i mean they, they they they're doing both so i i, I do believe that um that, but you're right though but i mean this is a very depressed car market in china it's it's been depressed in almost every country in europe car sales are down between 21% and 35% depending on which country you look in and that's really with comparison with 2019 numbers and that that those markets are not coming back i don't think the car industry is ever going to recover we in our forecast we do a kind of 5 year gentle slow recovery to the car markets it may be that they don't recover but that's why the percentage of sales i think the ev sales are, are absolutely rock solid and the non-EV are just not as rock solid. And certainly in Europe, we've got major problems um, shipping anything with a diesel engine in it. I think. Can, can the, we, yeah, cool. I was going to say, can we assume that the Chinese also have all the raw materials, battery, um, you know, metal, and so on? And we, and I think, the West I think they've got their supply chain in place. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. uh, they they don't. You know, contrary to a lot of beliefs, it's not that, that that they're native to China. It's just that they're developing their industry properly. The other the other thing about them is the exports. The exports from China were, were quite significant in about 2017-18 time frame. Well, they've now recovered to the same kind of level, and a good thirty percent of them are EVs. And they'll go on from here. One of the things I've noted, I mean, there's a, a rumour story out this week that NIO is going to build its next car plant in America because Chinese car imports, I think the percentage of um, tariff is 25%. So to avoid a lot of that tariff, not all of it perhaps, because some of the components are still come from outside of America, but they're going to build their factory, their next factory in the US because that's where people pay the most for cars. So I think, um, you know, uh, I, we'll keep going on about this. I mean, you said, you, you asked the question, is it a Biden problem? And I, I don't think it is. I think this is a China versus the rest of the world problem. China wants to be an industrial power. It, it, it needs to dominate the, its own car industry. And it's certainly beginning to do that. Uh, but it needs to dominate overseas car industries and um, it needs to uh, enter America. Uh, and at, at the moment, most of the pure play EV players are in Europe and selling the odd car in America, but without manufacturing over there. So it's over the next five, 10 years, are we going to see a complete demise of Detroit? You know, are we going to see um, American cars? I mean, our forecasts make it abundantly clear that everyone's got the numbers wrong for electric vehicles. Stellantis in particular, Ford as well, 
have under-supplied their supply lines to build EVs. They've under-predicted the number of sales the EV versions of their cars will make. As a result, their uh, supply chain is still over-geared towards internal combustion engine cars. That means there's going to be gaps in the market where they'll lose market share. Stellantis, Ford and General Motors losing 5 6 7% of their market share over the coming five or six years. They won't be in a good shape to fin- fix that until they, they build all their um, batteries in America. So that's that's not going to get fixed anytime soon. And it, 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 it kind of looks like, if not the demise of the American car industry, the reduction and making room for China to be an export power. I think I think that's you know I mean I think we can write that story any day of the week and we don't need to, to uh, go on about it but it was it was just something that uh, we we picked up on just just we come back to it time and time again that, that you know every year a larger percentage of cars um, sell that are electric and China has now sneaked ahead of even Europe which which has a cut off date of twenty thirty five for all of its cars and. Um, a piece Harry wrote, although Harry's not here, he did a. Uh, it's really just a report on a World Bank report, so it, it's not original research by us. But um, about uh, carbon pricing, carbon pricing, and carbon markets, and I, and I hadn't really understood that there are in fact um, sixty-eight separate um, carbon tax or carbon emission trading schemes in operation, you know, in places like America where they won't do a federal one yet. Uh, I think they will eventually. They, um, they have, um, uh, three new ones in, um, in the last year in Ontario, Oregon, New Brunswick. And, um, there's been additional, uh, they, they add, they've added one in Uruguay and, um, They've got plans for them in parts of Asia, parts of Africa, uh, and Israel. This is an idea that's caught on. It's the European ETS trading scheme, which is really the starting point for all this. I keep coming back to this. People don't realize how much global legislation comes out of pressure from Europe. I remember all the the, uh, tech... Uh, giants in America always getting hung up on antitrust laws as they're applied in Europe rather than even though the the laws are always invented in America but the regulation of markets is often left to Europe because America is so um, anti-interventionist when it comes to its politics and this is definitely a very interventionist idea and, and you can see how this is catching on over the years and how the border trading mechanism will also catch on over the years. And we're going to head, perhaps it's going to take another 10 years, to a unified pricing per tonne of carbon. At the moment, it's all over the place. I mean, the EU UTS is, is uh, over uh, 80, was over £80 a tonne through 2021. But th- this is raising an awful lot of money. I mean, we're seeing uh, $84 billion raised in 2021 on carbon pricing. And that number's only going to go up. And remember, most of these markets don't really cover much of the carbon in each in each society. I think the percentage is up around twenty five percent in total uh, of total global emissions. Are are um, you, you you are actually paying for the privilege 
to um, 21%. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's up from 15% in 2020. So, so it's, it's rising and slowly everyone's getting more and more uncomfortable if they, if they send uh, carbon into the atmosphere. And will the West ever be able to pressure China, which actually has a, a carbon prices into raising those carbon prices to anything like the same prices that are seen in Europe? Is that going to happen in 10 years? I think so. Yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of um, the carbon, um, the border adjustment. Mm. That, that if you find that Chinese companies are being punished, not only for make, creating more carbon when they make products from dirtier coal-based electricity, but also shipping uh, around the world with, with carbon-based uh, ship fuels, you're going to end up being uncompetitive on many markets. Trade is the, is the um, weapon to beat China with. And it needs constant, uh, open, untariffed trade with the rest of the world in order for it to to continue to grow. And and that's the, the stick you beat uh, China with. And that's always been understood, normally with fairly unfair tariffs. But I don't think the carbon adjustment mechanism is an unfair tariff. And I think uh, China's willing to step into line. In fact, wouldn't be at all surprised if at some stage they become a leader um, on that front. But it's you're right. It's not there yet. There's there's a fraction of their carbon that it's paid for, and it's at a very low price. Yeah. So, um, but you, you can watch the the carbon market price day to day, and you can see that it will change. And, and the mean, South Europe, Koreans and the and the Japanese, despite them being al- aligned with the West, they're actually, if anything, are they are they actually less interested in the, the carbon price and the electric vehicles than the Chinese? Something I, I wanted to ask about the previous story when you mentioned those sort of golf cart small EVs, which obviously plays, you know, to to dodge the weakness of EVs in terms of scale and, and weight. You know, that's obviously suited for very densely populated areas. So if it's being seen in Shanghai and Beijing, why isn't it being seen in Tokyo? Or, or is it like are the Japanese up to speed on carbon prices and EVs? I, I, again, it comes down to beating them with the same stick that you're mm. beating China. It's trade. The, these these countries uh, import all their raw materials, import all their fuel. The only thing they can do is make something with it and then export it. It's their whole economies are based on that. That's why they export so many cars. That's why they build ships. For people it's and those heavy industry businesses if you say to them i'm sorry you're going to have to pay a tax because you have a poor uh, carbon market that's that's a, immediately painful to them so so yeah i think i think they they, they their pricing may well not be high and they may well be laggards in this but they'll be dragged along kicking and screaming because I know Japan has, has kind of neglected its solar development, even in recent years uh, with recent events. It's only just brought in some small new rebate. So it's kind of not sure what it's thinking there. Well, on, on solar? Yeah, on solar. It does yeah. have the offshore wind, at least. It, it's taken offshore wind seriously, but it's taken its time. And, it, and it, in fact, it's had several false starts with offshore wind, because, especially floating wind, because it's got deep sea around it. Um, and it, it's that's because it wanted all of the equipment to be made by Japanese companies, and they just weren't expert at it. And they needed to time to realize that, partner with uh, European companies, and then come to the table again. It, all the time we've been covering energy markets, uh, Japan has been threatening to put floating uh, turbines out there, and it hasn't yet happened. It will. It's getting closer to it being a reality. Moving on, um, I'm quite interested, Andres. I'm quite uh, 
interested, Andrew, in your piece on um, how the Russian oil crisis has accelerated German grid development. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I've been meaning to write a, a little something about grids which, since we saw those maps uh, about a week, a month ago, where uh, the Netherlands is just red and orange everywhere, warning signals that they can't add more um, solar and wind onto the grid or even, even more consumers onto the grid. And I thought, well, you know, the big, the big European country that's having to build a lot more renewables now is Germany, of course. And I thought, well, what are they up to? So I, I looked at some old estimates from 2020 and some study from E.ON, which is a utility saying Germany needs 130 billion through to 2050 to update its grid. And that only comes to um, uh, 4 billion a year, which is not really that much. And then a year after and that's that, across a, a set four, four or five companies. Yeah, well, there's there's the four transmission system operators, but I think the there's also the utilities as another layer, and I think the utilities also spend on it. But I, I mostly looked at the transmission system operators in this piece. You know, so so you start out at four billion as the 2020 estimate for the next 30 years. Then you know in, in 2021 they ended up spending five billion and. They're predicting six billion once the the new green coalition government came in, which I think that happened in November, and then of course you have the the, the whole Russia Ukraine war. And now I believe that the um, the transmission system operators, there's four of them. There's Tenet, which is also the Netherlands. You've got 50 Hertz, Amprion, and Transnet. I mean, there's a lot of numbers in this article, but basically it comes down to that they are mostly increasing their spending by 50 percent that the per year. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, we, we're not great at covering the cable manufacturers and the copper providers, it, but, but that's where it's going. It's going to traditional infrastructure companies that, have, that are going to have to muscle up on their workforce, extend their supply chain and, uh, and, and build this. So, yeah, it would be nice to... Um to cover transmission a bit more because it's it's this thing that lurks in the background all of the capacity that's the sort of obvious thing all of these lines they just get built mostly un, un, unnoticed well, i'm going to pose you a question here andrews it's, i suspect this is what's going to happen governments are going to stimulate isos to build out a transmission system um, so that you can um, send electricity around the world more aggressively and then at the same time, there'll be a revolution in the pricing points for solar, home solar and storage, which will mean you have to transmit less electricity because it's already distributed, making this expenditure on grids less helpful. In Europe, we've got a different, different situation. I think in Europe, you're going to find that one of the best ways of storing electricity is selling it to your neighbour who needs it now and then getting some back from your neighbour who doesn't need some later. And so I, I believe that the transmission across Europe, and, and you're right, building a, a north-south and east-west lines in Germany is a great start to, to creating that hub, but taking in all 27 countries so that they can all move sufficient amounts of electricity from the southern states when the solar is on and from the northern states when the wind is on. And I, I think that saves, that, that means the penetration of, um, I've been doing this battery storage forecast, so the penetration of battery storage in Europe won't be quite so high as it, as perhaps in America or China, and simply because you can use your neighbour almost as a storage platform. And of course, there's the there's all, all the Norwegian hydro as a sort of storage, oh, yeah, or, or dispatchable, I should say. Yeah, it's, yeah absolutely. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Polysilicon uh, manufacturer has come to outside of China, has come to the States. Uh, yes, although don't don't be fooled by the, the title. Uh, it's still going to be ninety percent Chinese. It's it's China is building the millions. It's it, but it is it's interesting to see that the Western polysilicon industry, which was dying um, in twenty twenty and and from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty and throughout the twenty tens, it's stabilized. Its position has, has completely um, stopped bleeding out, and, and they're even considering some expansions, or uh, at the very least, they're considering revivals. They're, well, they're, I'm pretty sure this will happen. This, this eighteen thousand ton revival in in Montana with the Moses Lake facility. You know, you've got Hanha Solutions behind it. Which company? Is that? Rex, Which company? Rex Silicon is the American one. Yeah. And that's backed by Hanhok Q-Cells, which is a South Korean manufacturer, so effectively a Western one um, that's been expanding its module manufacturing in the United States. And, you know, it, it said it would like to build a fully vertical domestic U.S. solar supply chain, but, you know, the Biden administration isn't going to fully allow that. Well, I mean, it's not going to fully incentivize that like they would want. So what you have from the, the 20,000 tons of capacity of Rex Silicon is enough to make... Uh, six thousand, um, sorry, six gigawatts of solar, which is nice, but it's not huge, uh, and that's if it's running at a high capacity factor. How much does America need a year? To fully answer that, let me open <laughs> my numbers and see how much we're predicting America to add. <laughs> In um, okay, so America, if things were going really well, instead of instead of things going terribly because they shut down their own supply of modules from China. But let's just forget that. Let's look at the, the demand. Well, in 2021, they deployed 24 gigawatts. So you would want at least 100,000 tons of polysilicon manufacturing capacity instead of 20,000. And then in 2030, we, we expect America to manage to install 87 gigawatts of solar. And that would require about 300,000 tons of polysilicon at least. So... That's how oh, that's that's a long way off politically in political terms. So you know, everything may be hunky dory with the Chinese by then. But at six gigawatts is not it's not insignificant. If if you're adding um, the Moses Lake facility, um, actually, you do gigawatt. have you do also have the first solar, which takes uh, you know ten gigawatts off that doesn't need silicon at all. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So actually, when you can, do that, it's you, almost off. Can you remind me and the listeners why polysilicon is so uh, necessary for the solar industry? Well, I mean, it's necessary because it's the raw material. It's the um, you know, it's a silicon photovoltaic. It's the the, the raw material for the um, for the cells, the wafers. It, it's it's what it's made of. But as for why it's so crucial and why it keeps on being in the news, it's because um, it's the main, it's the most uh, capital intensive part of the supply chain. Um, you've got the four factories, you've got polysilicon, you've got wafers, you've got cells, you've got modules. And the polysilicon ones take two years to build uh, instead of between three and nine months for the other factories. Uh, and so what happened was the Chinese outcompeted everyone else. There was, uh, as I mentioned in this article, there was some 275,000 tons of polysilicon, which is enough for, what, 40, no, more than that, uh, 80 gigawatts of solar to be made. That that came offline in the West because it got outcompeted. And so you had a polysilicon glut. No one's investing in new in new facilities. 
And by the time they realize that there's a shortage and that demand is high and we need more polysilicon, well, it takes too long. It takes two years to build it. Didn't it all start with a fire in China? The, the first time we realized that, that, that there was going to be a shortage of polysilicon, there was a fire in one of the Chinese factories. Yeah, the, the, the price rise in 2020 was kicked off by fires and floods and, and things like that. And then and everyone looked at it and felt, hang about, there isn't enough mm -hmm. capacity. Yeah. And there's a fire and there's a flood. Oh, dear. I think things like maintenance and floods and fires, are, they, they certainly were in the headlines at the same time. That, that's when I noticed it, certainly. But they're not fundamental to it. No, they're not. They're not. But like everything, if you start, if you suddenly shine the, the torchlight on this, you you see the precarious political situation um, that we're that we're in globally around the solar industry. You know, people can't make their own solar panels. Uh, and, and something uh, I've been predicting is that. Oh, sorry to interrupt like that. Um, is that the cost will come down in, in the second half of 2023 because I, I think they will have a lot of new manufacturing capacity online by then. But now I'm comfortable saying, without necessarily changing that prediction, that the cost is going to, of, of throughout the solar supply chain, including the modules, is just going to keep inching up throughout the rest of this year like it has been for the first five months by about 1% a week. Uh, and the reason I'm saying, oh, it's definitely just going to keep going up and up is because there's this news from the Chinese National Energy Administration saying that there's 121 gigawatts of PV projects in China that are under construction, and they expect 108 gigawatts of them to be grid connected this year, which is more than twice the record, which was last year. Actually, no, it's slightly less than twice the record, but you know. I, I think uh, that message should go out to our listeners everywhere, that they should understand that um, solar is a lot is expected of solar. It's going to take many years, not, not just one cycle like this, but probably two, two and a half such cycles before we gearing up and fully appreciate um, the amount of solar that's going to be installed. And as a result, um, there will be price issues uh, and it will be a, a, a supply dominated environment for the next four or five years. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, you know, I, I don't want to abandon my prediction that the price will come down a lot in 2023, but I don't think it'll come down below. I don't think it'll come back to 2020 prices for, like you say, at least five years. And there's not anybody to stop that. I mean, if if you just say we'll make just enough policy to keep the price where it is, that's very similar to um, the gas producers at the moment. We'll produce just enough gas, not as much as 2019, just enough uh, gas and oil to keep the price where it is. You know, that, that's how cartels manage their resources. And effectively, you're starting to see, uh, um, yeah, America and Europe are trying to break the cartel, but you've got a Chinese cartel on polysilicon. Yeah, there's well, there's certainly 10 main companies. I don't know how much they're being, I don't think they're necessarily limiting their output because I think they're, they're more or less running at full pelt, but they certainly are taking advantage by charging so much. And, and I think what you see is that the price has gone up. If you look at a graph of pricing, it went up a lot and then it mostly stabilized and it goes up and down a bit, but it, it, you get the impression it can't go any higher. Otherwise, people, everyone else downstream just gives up and says, well, screw this. We can't even afford this. And then so you can't really the build your factories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, it should reach a, a natural peak, but... Um... Where both sides are happy, both supply and demand. But really, uh, it, it, it should be, if, if, I, if you were them, you'd be keeping it, just keeping the market still hungry. 
Uh, and the, and the, um, the high the, the high Chinese deployments and and these are really high because usually China is in the past few years it's been a third of the global um, marketplace now it's going to be half if it's 108 gigawatts deployed and and that's because of these two policies the um, whole county promotion which is this sort of county wide rooftop re residential even is where it's built but I don't think it's financed on that basis uh, it's financed through tenders from, from the government I think. Uh, and then you've also got the utility scale base projects, so they're called. Um, and it's probably like 40 gigawatts from each of those. And the base project thing, I, I think there's 80 gigawatts of the base project thing that is inactive planning and development. And But the total value is 450. So I don't think after 108, if, if 108 gigawatts does get built in China this year, it's just going, they're just going to build even more the next year. It, it's not stopping. But what we don't have is the answer to, you know, everybody hears this on a podcast and says, so what do I do about building my solar project in the USA? And, you know, we don't have the, the answer to that. You know, do you delay, wait till the prices come down? They will come down, but then maybe the market, uh, maybe China absorbs all the available panels uh, and the prices go back up again. So uh, we don't really have the answer to that. Um, although we're always happy to advise people as best we can. Um, Simon, I think there was something else you were uh, thinking uh, about asking. Well, yeah, there was one thing that caught my eye in the Worth Noting piece, which is at the World of Renewables uh, section of our website, rethinkresearch.biz slash energy. And it was about uh, something related to the climate crisis, and that is the lack of clean water and solutions to solve that. And one of them is desalination. And um, I read that uh, there's a new report um, from IRENA about the use of green hydrogen to do desalination. And I don't know much about desalination. Uh, and it just caught my eye. It was, it's interesting that uh, an energy-related topic is used to, to solve you know the the biggest problem of the world of in the world. You know that that clean water. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know desalination's becoming um, soon. We're going to have to cover it in detail. Um, we don't have an analyst trained on it. Um, I believe Harry understands um, the amount of energy um, that desalination needs. I don't, that's easy to look up. Um, and typically you, you, you want to, um, have it near a population center in the sea, not nothing on the land except for the clean water coming, coming onto the land. Um, and it, desert countries are already investing in this. It's really expensive, but, um, slowly the prices of this coming down it, in the same way that electrolyzers have been revolutionized in the last three or four years to create hydrogen um desalination um, pr process designs are being rethought um there's a huge um uh, need of it in uh, in california for instance um but currently it's there's no nothing actively planned um we know it's used heavily in saudi arabia um, and that's that's probably where most people would model it from. Um, green hydrogen is just a source of, of energy. It's just a, effectively a big battery. You know, you can use use the hydrogen at any stage to uh, um, to drive any any industrial process. If you happen to make it uh, by the sea, 
then you it's a very it could be that there's a convenient supply of hydrogen to power desalination and with renewables the the, the same renewables that are being used to generate the hydrogen if they flag then you cut in with hydrogen power to keep a constant supply of uh, uh, of electricity going to the desalination plant. Um, I, I, I think we should look at that. I think one of us should do a research paper on it um, just to get the technology in and get the size of the problem. I know it's, it's a big global problem and we haven't covered it in detail and we are starting to be asked questions by our clients about it. So it's probably something we're going to have to um, factor in. And if you're going to design a large um, energy project near a sea, then th th that option is going to come up. And, and we know quite a lot of companies have been asked that question. Um, what we haven't done is enough research to give it a full answer here. Um, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, as usual, uh, it's uh, um, another large issue. Read the whole issue. It's free. You can go and sign up for it. Um, Simon said it's uh, rethinkresearch.biz. Click on energy and go to weekly analysis. And um, you can sign up there and it's it's a, a free newsletter. Don't forget that the forecasts and data that we charge for um, cost just $4,600 a year to be a member of, uh, uh, of uh, to be a customer and get all of that for free. And um, you just click on forecast and data to take a look at what's available there. Um, thank you very much. And we'll be back next week with another um, copy of the Rethink Energy podcast. <laughs>